We're continuing in our series on Matthew, and uh, we are um, still in chapter 3, and uh, at the baptism of Jesus. And uh, we've been spending some time in this sort of third chapter on the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance and new identity or our new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's what we talked about. And last week we began looking at the personal baptism of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus identifying himself with us, entering into our kingdom even as we are entering into his. He's entering into our humanity, the one who was without sin, standing in for those who have no righteousness. And that's a, that's a big part of what we see in Jesus going down into the waters of baptism. He's going down into our identity, identifying with us so that we can then identify with him. And today we're going to linger a little longer on this baptism as we look at what is taking place as Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism. Of all the baptisms that John is doing out in the wilderness uh, at the Jordan River, and, and he was doing a lot of baptizing, okay? He was ministering weeks, maybe months in the wilderness, drawing the countryside to him from all around the area. Um, even Pharisees and Sadducees had heard about what was going on and were coming out to him. So John was baptizing a lot of people, thousands probably of baptisms taking place. But there's one baptism that's described in detail and one baptism that really stands out from all the others. Jesus goes into the water just like everybody else goes into the water. But when Jesus comes up out of the water, we see that his baptism is something brand new. And we're going to see what Matthew is telling us in this description of Jesus' coming up out of the water in his baptism. And I'll just pray before we read Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again that we get to gather and sit under it and that it teaches truth to us. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open to what you would speak to each one of us and uh, that we would leave here refreshed and renewed and regenerated. Uh, by the washing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the same text as last week. We just were in the first couple of verses last week. I'm going to do the last couple this week. And uh, Matthew is a long book, and so we will speed up at some point, but I don't know when. Um, so Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a lot of things that are literally taking place here, and and Matthew is also, in his choice of retelling this event, drawing his readers to consider many aspects of the meaning of what is taking place. And so I'm just going to sketch out some of the things, a few of the things that Matthew emphasizes in the way that he is retelling this account. And we already saw in some detail last week, firstly, that Matthew is highlighting Jesus' identity with fallen humanity. Those who have no righteousness must take on his righteousness. And then secondly, Matthew is also establishing Jesus as the new and true Israel. In December, we're going to look back at chapter 2 and see that Matthew highlights the fact that Jesus comes out of 
Egypt. He enters into Egypt, he stays for a time, and then he comes out of Egypt, just as Israel did. And now Matthew immediately takes Jesus through the waters of baptism, which in 1 Corinthians 10 the Apostle Paul equates to all of Israel passing through the Red Sea as they left Egypt. And then next week we're going to see that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness after passing through the water to suffer in the desert as Israel did for 40 years in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews hinting that one of the deepest mysteries of the universe really is that even Jesus, although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now this isn't accidental on Matthew's part. He knows that his readers will see the parallels of Jesus coming out of Egypt, going through the river, and into the wilderness. So Matthew has a purpose in his writing, and he's highlighting some of these things as he goes along and putting them in this order. And then Matthew also uses the phrase here in this text, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And in this way, Matthew signifies the 400 years of silence since Malachi are over. The words that he used here reflect Isaiah 64.1, that the prophet cries out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And then you see similar phrasing in other prophets like Ezekiel 1.1 with the rending or the opening of the heavens and God speaking. And so Matthew is signaling here a return of God's voice, a return of his prophecy, a return of God's guidance to Israel. The heavens that had been shut, had been impassable, had been bronze for 400 years are now open to Jesus and open again to Israel through Jesus. Matthew knows when he uses these phrases, when he puts things together in this way, this is what he is teaching and telling his Jewish readers. So Matthew is signaling a lot of things, and we could talk about any of them to some length. And in addition to that, and we have to be careful that we don't reduce the writings of the gospel down to just simple examples or prescriptions of Christian living, but when Matthew sat down to write this, he he wasn't mainly trying to say that and what we too often get out of texts like this is Jesus was obedient to be baptized, and therefore you should be baptized too. That's true. Jesus was obedient to be baptized, and you should be baptized too. But that is the least of what Matthew is saying here. Matthew is saying all of these other things. He sat down with a purpose to give his account of the Messiah, and he is teaching us through how he is telling the story. And so he knows exactly what he's writing, and he has so much for us here. The Gospels, all of Scripture, defies reductionism down to just simple examples. But, but Matthew teaches that well. We see the obedience of Jesus, and we should certainly be obedient like Jesus as well. But what I want to spend a little more time on today is the next part that Matthew highlights. It says, He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so what we have here is Matthew signaling an anointing of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Now, this is what people didn't see. I just wanted to be clear. You can, you're, you're a little early on me there. I had not set that up yet, but that's my fault. So put that back. We're going to pretend we didn't see that. What Matthew is saying here is that the Holy Spirit descended. He came sort of spiraling or fluttering down this sort of spirit, this light. We don't, the imagery is important. It is like a dove. He, he's a shimmering light. He's like the Shekinah glory over the tabernacle. Uh, the Holy Spirit appears as multiple tongues of frame, flames, like in the fire and axe. Um, 
you know, is, is, is he a literal dove? It's, it's probably all those things and more. And the dove imagery is important, and we're going to get to that. But now you're ready. <laughs> what I don't want you to think is that this is what people saw. Okay, people did not see a literal dove sitting on Jesus' head. Right? It was not a bird on a man's head. And, and, and I didn't know how to describe what the Holy Spirit might look like, so I wanted to show you what it didn't look like. Right? So now that you've seen what the Holy Spirit doesn't look like descending on Jesus, and that's actually Niles Crane, um, it was amazing. When I Googled the bird on a man's head, that was, that's what came up, and I'm like, that is perfect. That is exactly, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does not look like sitting on Jesus' head. And so what we can do is get rid of that picture now. And you can, if, if you can imagine this, just replace that picture now with the exact opposite of something that silly and ludicrous. Because it was not silly. It was not ridiculous. It was glorious. It, it, was, it was beyond comprehension. Thousands of people had been baptized by John over and over and over again in the, in, in the Jordan River. And here Jesus is baptized. And when he comes up out of the water, the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's this, I imagine it sort of like this sort of this drifting or fluttering or, or spiraling, circling sort of spirit that, that, that has the appearance of a dove or takes on this idea of a dove. And, and, and the reason that Matthew uses dove imagery is, is also important because it links to a few other themes of new creation and new covenant. The, the first time if you're in the Bible and, and you encounter the spirit hovering or descending is where is the first time you see the spirit hovering? In Genesis, right away, right? Over the waters of the new creation, excuse me, that is to come. And, and, the, and the first time we run into a dove is a dove returns to Noah as a signal that creation has been remade and that the earth is re-inhabitable now as a new creation, that, that God has cleansed it and made it clean, and that there is a new covenant now coming to Noah. And so this imagery of the Holy Spirit hovering and descending and, and lighting upon Jesus like a dove has all these connotations of new creation and new covenant. And Jesus is the new kingdom. He's the new covenant. He's the new creation. He is the age to come. And Matthew just keeps layering in meaning after meaning of what is transpiring with Jesus in this incredible baptism. But there's another picture of the Holy Spirit descending and resting on Jesus that Matthew has in mind with the Holy Spirit and it's the anointing. It's the, the kind of resting of a mantle over a king's shoulder, or it's the pouring of oil onto a prophet's head. And so what I want to do today is just I want to look at the significance out of all of these things that we could talk about what Matthew is doing, and he's doing all of them. And, and, and God is telling us all these things through Matthew. I just want to look at the significance of Jesus' anointing as the new and final prophet, priest, and king. And what that anointing in his baptism means for us in our baptism and in our trust and our faith in Jesus. It, it's hard for us, and we have to look at Old Testament anointing first, it's hard for us to understand the value of anointing in the minds of a devout Israelite who would be the primary audience that Matthew is writing to. And so we have to go back, we have to take ourselves back into the Old Testament to get a better understanding for ourselves of what anointing is. And specifically the anointing of three offices where it was used in the nation of Israel. Prophets were anointed, priests and kings were anointed. And so we have examples like Elijah anointing Elisha as a prophet in 1 Kings 19.16 and in 2 Kings 2.9. 
And we have Moses anointing Aaron and his sons as priests in Leviticus 8.30. And then we have Samuel anointing David as king in 1 Samuel 16.13. And so you have to understand that what anointing did with oil is it ritualized a common practice. Anointing took something that was an everyday occurrence and it made it significant. Anointing took the use of oil for various purposes and transformed its meaning, much like a meal is transformed into the Lord's Supper. Right? We take something that's common and everyday and it is imbued with new significance and spiritual meaning. Or a cleansing bath is imbued with new meaning as a baptism. And in the same way, a special anointing of oil is infused with greater meaning. Putting oil on was a common everyday activity in the Middle East. It was put on as a form of skin and hair care. If you arrived at someone's house, they might offer you sort of perfumed oil for your dry skin because you had just walked all day to get there and you were hot and dry and your skin needed to be refreshed. And so they would give that to you. You would anoint your guest with oil just as a common courtesy for their refreshment. But in Scripture, we take this common practice and we see that it is imbued with a deeper meaning. And we can remember things like even Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, in which David says of God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so, so David says God anoints him in this very familiar way and in a special way at the feast that God has prepared for him. So then what is the meaning then of the sacred anointings in the Old Testament? How was this common practice taken and made special? Well, the first thing is, is that anointing with oil symbolized the Holy Spirit. The oil of the lamps in the temple in Exodus 27 is one example of this. But in the ritual of anointing, nobody was really looking at the oil. Right? Like nobody thought, oh, the oil is the thing. I have to have the oil. If I get the oil, then I've got what I need. It's not the oil. The oil was just pointing towards something else. And what it pointed towards was the Holy Spirit. People knew that the oil didn't make any difference, but that it was the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit that they were being anointed with by the one in authority that mattered. Secondly, the anointing set apart the person anointed. In Genesis 28, 18, you remember there's Jacob's, Jacob's dream of the ladder and the angels coming and going from heaven and uh, he is spoken to by God. And, and he wakes up immediately and he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And what he does, Jacob does is very interesting, he takes the stone that he had been using for his pillow. Man, I'm glad I don't have a stone for my pillow. But people do this a lot in the Old Testament. They use a stone for a pillow. But he took the stone that he was using for a pillow and he set it up and he anointed it with oil. And he named that place a special name because God was there. He named it Bethel. And by setting the stone up and by pouring oil on it, he said, this stone is sacred. This stone is set apart. It looks like every other stone that's lying around here. But because I have established it and I have anointed it with oil, this is a special stone. It marks this place. And so the Old Testament prophet, priest, or king who was anointed was set apart from other men, who was set apart from other people, set apart for the Lord. It could be Saul, it could be David, it could be Aaron, whoever it was, the anointing was a setting apart. The other thing that anointing with oil was is it granted the appointment and the qualification and the authority of the anointed one. 
So when, when Samuel was sent out to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, he thought it would be the oldest son. And then he thought it would be the next one. And then he thought it would be the next one. And he went all the way down through the sons, through all seven sons, until finally he got to David. And David was the one. And God said to Saul, fill your horn with oil and anoint the youngest son. This is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So it's not just appointment. It's not just set apart, but the anointing qualifies or authorizes and gives authority to the one who is anointed. And we understand this to some extent today. Um, After Stephen Harper left the office of prime minister, we were really no longer interested in the decisions that Stephen Harper made from day to day because he was no longer appointed to a position of authority. So whatever Stephen decided, that was fine. We didn't care. When he was in office, the decisions that he made, we listened to. With Trudeau as prime minister and he is appointed and given authority, then we care about the decisions that he makes. But with that authority, there needs to come some qualification. And we often get into long and sometimes heated debates in our culture about whether people who are appointed to certain positions in authority are actually qualified and should be there. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit both qualified and appointed or enabled the person for the appointment. And so... You have to understand that we understand this idea of appointment. They understood it, and they saw that the anointing of the oil was actually the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and it qualified people for their position and gave them authority. But just like us today, those Old Testament anointings were imperfect or incomplete. Prophet after prophet was anointed and taught the people, but the people could not be preserved from their sin. Priest after priest was anointed, but there was no high priest that could take the place of the people and put an end to the sacrifices that had been going on for over a thousand years. King after king was anointed, but their kingdoms all failed. Israel could not put their final hope in those priests or kings. You see, the anointings of the Old Testament, just like our anointings, aren't perfect and they're not complete. Prophet after prophet, priest after priest, king after king was anointed and ended or faltered. The hope of the Old Testament, the hope that a true Israelite put their hope in and hoped for was that an anointed one, a Messiah, would come who would have the Holy Spirit without measure. That the Messiah would never fail, never falter, never run out. He would establish his kingdom forever. And so this anointed one, this anointing is so important to the readers of Matthew and should be important to us because Matthew is very deliberately trying to tell us something here. And so that brings us forward to Jesus' anointing. We come to his anointing, not just an anointing of oil, but the Holy Spirit himself. And we can look back again to the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 61 to see its foreshadowing. In Isaiah 61.1, Speaking of the one who is to come, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So Isaiah says that the Lord himself is going to anoint this Holy One. Not a representative of the Lord, not a symbolic anointment, but God himself is going to anoint this one with the Holy Spirit. 
This is the anointing of Yahweh. And then we have a long list in Isaiah 61 after, if you go on from those verses, of all the activities that this anointed one will participate in in the anointing of God. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to proclaim the day of the Lord. He's going to comfort those who mourn, etc., etc., etc. And so this anointed one is going to hold an office and he's going to perform these duties and be empowered to perform these duties by the anointing of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 11, we see a more complete description of the spirit that this anointed one receives. In Isaiah 11, 1 to 2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Well, there's that language again, right? Matthew's no dummy. He knows what he's saying. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so the spirit's going to rest on him and the spirit will not come and go as he did on others in the Old Testament. You remember people like Samson where the spirit would be on him and then the spirit would leave him and then the spirit would be on him and then the spirit would leave him. The spirit's going to come to this anointed one and it's going to rest on him. It's not going to keep coming and going. And then Isaiah again says in Isaiah 42.1, it says, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That should ring some bells too, right? And God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased or with whom I'm delighted. But in Isaiah, when he's prophesying of this, he says, this is, look, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so Jesus says this of himself. Jesus says, I am this anointed one. You remember at the beginning of his ministry, he's sitting one day in the synagogue and it's actually Isaiah 61 that it's his turn to read that day. And he reads Isaiah 61 and he goes through all of those things that he's going to do and then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and all the eyes of the synagogue are on him and they're fixed on him. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, I'm this anointed one, right? Listen to John the Baptist. Listen to my disciples. Listen to me. Listen to the scripture. This has been fulfilled in me. He's saying, I'm this anointed one. And then he lived out the life of the anointed one with perfection. He did everything that the anointed prophet, priest, and king was supposed to do. He proclaimed the day of the Lord. He made the final sacrifice that no other priest could make. He established the throne of his kingdom forever. He's the final prophet, priest, and king who is anointed and who the Holy Spirit, excuse me, does not leave. And then after Jesus has been taken up into heaven, Peter is invited to preach to a a mixed company of Gentiles and Jews at Cornelius' house. And so he explains it to them. He says to them, anyone from any nation can fear and follow God if you have peace through Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. He says, "You, you heard the news. You know what happened. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter says this is what happened when Jesus was baptized. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and you saw him go out and fulfill all the offices and all the roles and all the duties of an anointed prophet, priest, and king of God. He did it all. So there's just there's no question that Matthew wants everyone to know that at this baptism, Jesus is the anointed one. 
And of course, it's not really Matthew that's proclaiming this. It's God. Because with Jesus standing in the water and the Holy Spirit resting on him, then God the Father speaks from the newly opened heavens and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God, through Matthew, has even more to say here. Right? And we could go into now another thing that Matthew wants to get across and God wants to get across through Matthew about the three persons of the one true God, about the sonship of Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about the fatherhood of God. But we could get into the Trinity and talk about that another time. And I did a sermon on that in 2016, if you want to look it up, I think it was, uh, on the website. Uh, you can go back and look at Trinity. That's a whole other thing that Matthew brings out here, but we're not going to talk about that. But Jesus, and Peter says, goes forward from this baptism of John and he lives out his life and he does all this ministry, healing and preaching and opposing the devil, and he does it all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you think at this point, wow, isn't it good to be Jesus? Right? He's got this power, he's got this anointing, he's got this office, he's got this this Holy Spirit resurrection power, and you think it's good to be Jesus. And yes, of course it is good to be Jesus. But what we don't want to miss here is that this anointing applies to us as well. One of the most powerful promises we have from God is that this same Spirit that we have just spent all this time understanding and realizing the significance of this anointing of this Spirit, this same Spirit that anointed Jesus, that indwells Jesus, the Spirit that is named the Spirit of Christ, also today indwells everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. The same Spirit that enabled the ministry of Jesus and the same Spirit that even raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who are believers and put our trust in Him. We have the righteousness of Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus in us. And so we need to move from Jesus' anointing now to consider our anointing. And I just have several scriptures here that are kind of in order, and I want to unpack them as we go, just, just briefly, to just show you what the scripture tells us about this anointing of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us. And, and I'm just touching on a little bit, and I apologize to some of my Pentecostal and more charismatic friends out there. I've also done a sermon on the gifts of the Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit that you can go back and look on. I'm not getting into all that today, okay? I'm just looking at the, the real simple miracle the everyday miracle of the Holy Spirit being upon us and upon believers and what the Bible tells us about we who trust in Christ have this anointing of the Spirit. So first of all, Matthew says it through the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says it. You remember we talked about it before a couple of weeks ago. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? So John says, this is just the beginning. Wait till you see what's coming. Right? The Messiah is coming. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John says, this is something that's going to come. And then Jesus says in John 14, uh, 16 to 18, as he's talking to the disciples and explaining just before he departs, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
And so then Jesus says, yeah, disciples, get ready because I'm not going to leave you alone. You're sad because I'm going, but I've got to go because the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to be with you. In fact, he's going to be in you. And then you go ahead to Acts 2.33. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father after Jesus had gone back to heaven. And then Paul explains it in Romans 8.11. He says, If the Spirit of Him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Ephesians 1.13-14 says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchase possession to the praise of his glory so you see what these last few verses have talked about is that God, that jesus it was promised jesus said it was going to come he went to heaven peter said this was poured out on you romans says that the spirit dwells in you ephesians says you having believed have the holy spirit so there's this link between when you put your faith in jesus and when you believe and trust in jesus christ then you are sealed with the holy spirit of promise it's a guarantee of the inheritance of eternal life but it's more than that. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 1 John 2.20 says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. The anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. Two things here to just pick up on really quickly. When the Holy Spirit is given to us, we receive power. The anointing of the Holy Spirit gives us that power, that authority to be able to carry out the duties of the office that we are appointed to in Christ Jesus' kingdom. And that Holy Spirit, the Holy One that we have received, the anointing, John says, he even uses the word explicitly, the anointing that you have received from the Holy Spirit abides in you. That, holy, that, that anointing doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. So you see, this is what I mean when I say Matthew, Matthew has more to say than just Jesus was baptized, you should be baptized too. I mean, yes, Jesus was baptized and you should be baptized too. Matthew, the Gospels have more to say than just Jesus was a good teacher and therefore you should listen to him. What Matthew is saying, what the Gospels are saying are trying to get across to us fundamental, important truths about our life in Christ Jesus if we believe. That we have this anointing of the Holy Spirit. That we are set apart. That we are given an office. That we are qualified and authorized and given power to execute that office as anointed ones of the Holy Spirit. Rituals and moralism will not change your life or change your destination. What Matthew is teaching you is that Jesus is true Israel, that he is prophet, priest, and king, that he is the anointed one, and that all the promises of God and all the words of Scripture tells you that you are anointed with him. You have this anointment of the Holy Spirit on you. You have the Spirit resting on you. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. You have the Spirit that will abide with you and will not leave you. And our anointing is true. 
God chooses those who will be anointed, and each member of the church, as they are anointed, also receives their respective office and gifts. And as you go into your life groups later on this week, and you read the insert if you're at home doing it alone, all of the scripture in the life group and all of the things that we're talking about in the life group actually just expands on this idea of the reality that we are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. That we have this anointing of the Holy Spirit that when Jesus ascended, he ascended to give gifts to men and that we have these gifts and we have these offices. And so for us then, if that's our anointing, when, when we feel inadequate to our role, when, when you in the middle of the week or near the end of the week feel, or maybe this afternoon or Monday morning, <laughs> when you feel that you will never possess the righteousness that God demands, when you feel that you will never have the authority or the power to carry out the tasks that God has set before you in your appointed place in the kingdom, that is exactly when you lean into the Spirit. That's exactly when you remember the anointing that you have. The anointing is your qualification. The anointing is your authority. The anointing is your empowerment. God does not command what He does not grant. He has anointed you with the Holy Spirit for you to be able to live the Christian life. Now, as I was you know, studying this and reading it and just sort of unpacking it, I had to ask myself, does, does my life show that I am anointed? Right? People knew who Elisha was. People knew who Aaron was. People knew who David was. Right? His, his life, their lives showed their anointment and their appointment and their authority. They spoke the Word of God. They acted out the duties of their anointing in a way that people could say, these were men of God who are doing the work of the kingdom. And so I, I had to ask myself, did, when, when I go around town, do, do I feel like I'm anointed? Does my life play out as though I am anointed? Of course we all want to live our Christian life to a greater degree. None of us are content. Not even the Apostle Paul felt like he had finished the race, like he had achieved some sort of perfection. He was discontent. He, he wanted to live his Christian life to an even greater glory to God. And his answer, like ours, was always the same, what ours should be. Lean into the anointing that we have in the Holy Spirit. We have to preach to ourselves the truth of Scripture that Matthew sets the foundation for. Matthew lays the foundation here of the anointment of Jesus Christ, which leads to our receiving of the, Jesus, of, of the Holy Spirit through trust in Jesus. And so we have to preach that truth to ourselves. We have to look at these Scriptures and remember that we are anointed. The Holy Spirit dwells us, resides in us, abides in us, will not leave and depart from us. So if you're struggling to live even a little bit in the Christian way, it may be because you're not fully understanding or fully embracing or fully recognizing the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and His anointing of you. And the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is just not some impersonal power. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. And so, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. You can talk to the Holy Spirit. You, you can ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of His anointing, to bless you with the awareness of His presence, to empower you and give you courage and wisdom and truth. 
You remember all the things that the Holy Spirit was in His anointing of Jesus. If you just go back there, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. If you want those things, look to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the living Christ. He still offers His anointing today. Jesus can declare, by my spirit I can restore you and return you to the purpose of your creation. I've led the captives free and I've given gifts to mankind. And that means you. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't feel like I got the Holy Spirit. I don't feel like I have this anointing, what you're describing here. Well, that's what the washing of the water of the Word is to do. It's to preach to us and it's to refresh and remind us that we are anointed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us if we trust in Christ Jesus. But if you're not a believer today, there's, that's good news for Christians. But if you're not a believer today, there's good news for you here too. If your trust is not in Christ for your life, death, and resurrection, then you must also know this, that Jesus has proclaimed the good news. Jesus has never denied his anointing to anyone who earnestly sought it. You can believe and receive this anointing for eternity. Isaiah 45:19 says, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to your descendants, seek me in vain. God says, I'm not hiding. I've not asked you to seek me just to refuse you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Or Psalm 51, 17 says, Our sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The good news is here for us as Christians that we have the Spirit. The good news is here for those who may not yet have believed that God has proclaimed that He will not withhold His anointing. He will not withhold His Son from anyone who comes and earnestly, contritely seeks Him. Matthew has told us the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek it now while it is close by. Let's pray. Father God, this morning You have just reminded us and shown us in Your Word, which is true, that the Holy Spirit is living and active, that He has anointed us, that He is accomplishing things in our life. But Father, I admit for myself, far too often, the Holy Spirit seems distant and I have forgotten my anointing. And Father, so I ask forgiveness for that for myself. But I also encourage my brothers and sisters here that even this week as they go through their homework, as they are sitting in their life groups, that they would reconnect again, that they would remind themselves of this reality. That the, the shadow of what you showed us in the Old Testament with anointing with oil by men to other men was just a shadow of the anointing that was to come to the Messiah where you would anoint with the Holy Spirit your Son. And that then you gave as a gift to us that Jesus said, I'm going to go so that my spirit can be with you. Father, we connect those dots and we cannot be anything but humbled and overjoyed and rejoice that your Holy Spirit empowers us. We are not here alone, that you have not left us as orphans, that we are not expected to live this Christian life in our own power, but by your power and your might and by the Holy Spirit. We are given the appointment and the office and the authority to live in your kingdom. 
We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.